Thank you for joining us at East Wind this evening. And now let's prepare our hearts for the Word of God as we present a message that Pastor Myers preached almost three years ago entitled, The Certainty of Christ. Luke chapter 1 and verse 1. For as much as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us, even as they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. It seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, write unto thee in order, most excellent Theophilus. This, of course, is also the same individual that Luke penned the book of Acts to and addressed at the beginning of the book of Acts, Theophilus. People have speculated as to who Theophilus was. It seems clear from history that this was a person of some importance that was a part of that New Testament church to some degree. It was someone for sure that Luke honored and was very specific about addressing not only the book of Luke, but also the book of Acts, so that this individual would clearly see who Jesus was and the things that happened. And then he says in verse 4, that thou mightest know the certainty of those things wherein thou hast been instructed. He was, no doubt, in some sort of a study and some sort of a connection with that New Testament church. He had been taught. But Luke said, I think it's important for you to know the certainty of those things wherein thou hast been instructed. Many of us that are here tonight have walked with God for a number of years. We have sat in many a Sunday morning and Sunday evening services. Many of us have gone to Wednesday night Bible studies, been a part of home Bible studies, been a part of small groups. One fellow said, we've been educated way beyond our level of obedience. (laughs) There may be some truth to that. But there are going to be in every one of our lives certain times when our faith is going to be challenged. And we're going to have to know the certainty, the certainty of our faith. You say, oh, pastor, I would never doubt it. Well, John the Baptist did. But I want to preach with the help of the Lord tonight on this subject, the certainty of Christ. The certainty of Christ. I'm thankful that I serve a God who will give us absolute certainty. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Lord, we're thankful for your blessings, thankful for your spirit, thankful for the anointing of the Holy Ghost that we feel in this place. Thankful for a church that will come together and worship you in one mind and one accord. We are so thankful, God, and we ask you now, 
as we look to your word once again, that our hearts and minds would be open up and that you would allow us, Lord, to be able to digest into our spirit and into our mind once again the word of God that changes us from the inside out. In the name of Jesus, we ask these things. Everybody said amen. amen. You may be seated. Thank you for standing. Richard Dawkins, one of the leading academics, atheists in our world today, Oxford professor, wrote the book, The God Delusion, which had and continues to have, unfortunately, a tremendous amount of impact on the millennial generation. He says, and I quote, in a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt. Other people are going to get lucky. And you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe we observe has precisely the properties that we should expect. There is at the bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, and no good. Then we are left to understand that there is nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. DNA neither knows nor cares. It just is, and we must dance to its music. End of quote. What a dark, dreary, pessimistic view that is. One of the things that atheists struggle with in their conflict with people of faith like you and I is how can you be so certain of what you believe? They want us to somehow move from our position of certainty and admit that there is a possibility that we are believing in something that will not and cannot meet our expectations. This is quickly followed up with also an assertion that there is nothing about our faith that can explain why there is suffering in this world today. If there is a good and loving God, why do people hurt? And I think from the outset that we can say this. There is nothing about atheism that helps hurting people in this world. There is nothing about atheism that gives people any hope. If I was not a person of faith and I was going through a time of hurt, pain, and question, I would not find any solace in this definition of what Richard Dawkins just said concerning the world that you and I live in. But instead, we as Christians find hope in our faith. 
And we also find hope in what we believe, as one man said, that God is a God of two books. One book is the book of nature. And we see the evidence of a creator and an intelligent design. We see the fingerprints of God all around us. When we look into the sky and we look into this world and we, we observe nature and the habits and the incredible design of so many different species and animals and how salmon can swim upstream and find their way back to a spot that they were hatched in. All of the different things that we look at around us it is, as it were, a book that God reveals himself in. And then, of course, there is the book of his written word. And between those two things, we believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that there is a God that is a creator that created you and I in the image of God breathed into us the breath of life and though we may not understand everything that comes in this journey called life we have found that there is one that we can go to in a time of need we may not always be able to explain it under the microscope of logic and reason but we know that we know that we know that our Redeemer liveth. And it frustrates the scientist and the atheist and it frustrates them to the point that they believe that it's even irrational, or naive, or perhaps even arrogant that we are so certain in our faith. There is this school of thought that we must be open-minded, which is code for not convinced, for us to be seriously considered as a person of reason. And for our faith to be taken seriously, we must be more open-minded. I would say to this great body of believers tonight that being convinced in our faith is a gift from God. And I would say that being convinced in our faith is more of what God is doing for us than what we are doing in our search for God. I would also say that God wants us to be certain because there is a peace that comes with certainty, a peace that surpasses all understanding. And I hope in the next few minutes that I have with you tonight that the Holy Ghost will help me to reveal to you that you can know beyond the shadow of a doubt, beyond the preponderance of the evidence that God is real and God is on your side. There was no one that
that was more intellectually accomplished in the New Testament than the Apostle Paul. And he found a solid rock of certainty in Christ that he passed to those around him. And it was contagious. There is something about certainty that keeps you like an anchor in a time of stormy seas, in a season of discouragement and despondency, in a time when pain is your constant companion, in a time when you're not even sure if you can make it through to the next day. There is something that comes from God. Oh, I feel the Holy Ghost in this house tonight. There is something that comes from God that the academics cannot explain and the scientists cannot explain and the microscope does not reveal. But in the, in the world of personal experience, you and I become aware of a confidence and a certainty that everything is going to be all right. I've come to preach to somebody tonight. I don't know what you may be going through. You may be at a point of crisis in your faith even this night. But there is a God that wants you to know. He knows where you are. He knows the path that you take. And he will bring you through. Oh, I feel like you ought to clap your hands and lift your voice with the shout of certainty the certainty that we have in Christ is not something that we obtain through experience or intellect alone but rather it is the result Christ giving that certainty as a gift. God manifest himself in flesh and revealed himself in Christ for the expressed purpose of salvation and certainty that we might know him. That we might know him. If doctors want to know about you, they can subject you to an MRI, PET scan, x-rays, variety of all different tests. But when they're all said and done with those tests, do they really know you? I dare say to the people at the airport that's working for TSA security, I dare say that they really know me. Though every time I go to fly on a plane, they scan me with one of their fancy machines. But it would be ludicrous to assume that, that those people know me because they have scanned my body through a machine. To really know you, there must be conversation, communication, and relationship. And I'll go one step further. To really know somebody, they have to reveal themselves to you. For you to be certain that you know them, 
They alone reveal themselves to the point that you are certain that you know them. How can I be certain as I stand here tonight that my wife loves me? (laughs) I would have to say that I cannot find that certainty on my own. She has to give that certainty. And after whatever, 15, 17 years, I am certain that she loves me. Now I may feel different a couple hours after the service tonight. (laughs) But there's, there's only one way that you and I can be certain about someone else. And that is for them to reveal themselves to you. And when they reveal themselves to you, and you have all of the evidence of different circumstances that you have shared together. Everybody in this building has got the evidence of circumstances when they didn't know where to go at a midnight hour, and they called upon God, and God revealed himself. When you went through a time of pain or you went through a time of sickness or you went through a time of disappointment or a time of divorce and you didn't know where to go, the God of heaven, the one who manifests himself in flesh, revealed himself to you. And you picked yourself up off the floor and you said, I know that I know that I know that my Redeemer liveth. So I submit to you tonight that it's those times of struggle that give us certainty rather than challenge our certainty. We are certain in Christ, not because of who we are, but because of who he is. He has given us the gift of confidence so that you and I can be certain in our faith. He gives us that. By allowing us to know him. Which brings us to this point. That our faith is not an abstract belief in a theory. It is a living relationship with a person. It's so important for us to get this revelation. Our faith is not an abstract belief in a theory. It is a living relationship with a person. We are not looking at different philosophies and finding the one that suits us best for the time period that we're in. We have found a God who robed himself in flesh and revealed himself to mankind and went to a cross and suffered and bled and died and was buried and rose again on the third day and we live with him forevermore. Paul said this, that I might know him in his suffering. And perhaps this is the area that presents the greatest of our challenges 
and our certainty in Christ. Perhaps nothing is more difficult for a Christian to absorb or to explain than the issue of suffering. Why does a loving God allow people to suffer? When we were over in Namibia a few months ago, and we had gone to an orphanage where there were many children. In fact, I didn't even have a chance to mention this this morning, but we're actually at this very moment building that orphanage in Namibia so that those kids have a place to stay with the rainy season coming on. And when we were in Namibia, we visited this place. They had a building that was half done, and they were living in these little tin shacks, and there were kids that had gathered for us to come and talk to, and we brought food and ministered to them, and it was very moving for our entire family. But when we got back in the car, the missionary's wife told us that there was one little boy who had been burned to the point of his face being all marred and scarred and being disfigured. And he had heard that there were some Americans that were coming to visit the orphanage and that perhaps they would help financially to build this orphanage. And he went and hid while we were there because he said, my face is so distorted, I do not want to scare them away. So the whole time we were there, this boy hid from us. The missionary's wife told us this story as we drove away from this orphanage. And of course, we were all broken to tears as we said, we've got to do something to help. Later on that night, my sons asked me this question. They said, Dad, why does God allow kids like this to suffer to this degree? Why does God allow people to hurt and to live in such horrific, horrible conditions? And we talked a little bit about the risk that God took in giving all of us our own free will. And the fact that we have the propensity in our flesh to make mistakes and consequences that affects all of humanity as that goes down through the line. And we understand that. But there is something greater that I believe is revealed through our relationship with Christ. We understand that there's pain that's in this world. We also understand that the atheists offer no hope, no solace. They just say some people are going to be blessed, or they don't even use that word, lucky. And some people are not going to be lucky. And that's just the way it is. Blind physical forces that doesn't feel one way or the other. It just is what it is. But I rise tonight to say there is something much deeper than just us walking through this life with some sort of a blind approach to the physical forces that surround us. There is a God that is at work in all that we do. 
and we feel him. And within our humanity, I just want to throw this in. There is a desire to seek after God. That frustrates the scientists and the atheists. Even if it's not Christianity. There's a billion people in this world that worship Buddha. Because within the DNA of human nature is a desire to know what is out there. And there is a propensity, even within our humanity, to know that there is something out there that's beyond this natural realm. And C.S. Lewis made this observation. I think it's very insightful. He said, it's very curious that, that we as humans get thirsty and there is water that covers two-thirds of this earth. It's very curious that we as human beings get hungry and there is food that surrounds us, vegetation and animals and, and all that we have. And it seems odd that in all of the aspects of the desires that we have within humanity, there is that manifestation of something that meets that desire and that hunger. It would seem odd that humanity would seek for a spiritual solution if there is no spiritual solution. So within humanity, there is this desire to seek after something that would make all of this world make sense. And I know that tonight we were not going to understand every single thing that happens in our lives. And we don't pretend tonight to be able to give an explanation for every single thing that you may be facing and I may be facing. I know some of this is going to just have to be a walk of faith. But I do believe that there is a God who is wanting to reveal himself even in the midst of suffering. I believe it is revealed through our relationship with Christ. Because ladies and gentlemen, at the heart of Christianity is a cross. And on it, Jesus suffered and died. On that cross, Jesus who claimed to be God suffered. Do you believe it? Yes, absolutely. With all of my being, I believe that. But the question remains that is so troubling to atheists and non-believers is, why is God on a cross? If he is the God of heaven and earth, why did he end up on a cross? Suffering and bleeding and dying in such an undignified manner. If he is the God that you say he is, why did he end up on a cross? This is the question that atheists will ask. The creator of the universe. Suffering on a cross. In other words, you're putting your faith in something that really didn't make a very big impression in any sort of a majestic way if indeed he was God. <laughs> oh, God is amazing. It shows us that at the very least, that God does not remain distant 
to the issue of human suffering, but has himself become part of it. <laughs> yes, the God of heaven and earth could have come and his feet barely touched this earth, but instead he was robed in flesh. He was born in a manger. He wasn't born to a wealthy family. He didn't come with royalty and trumpets blared and horses. It was a God, hallelujah, that robed himself in flesh and was tempted at all points like you and I, yet without sin. And did not remain distant from the issue of suffering. He did not, as it were, remove himself from getting his hands dirty with humanity. He walked the dusty streets. His whole ministry and life was out there touching, healing, teaching. And then he did not remove himself, though it was a challenge to the flesh as it would be for any of us to submit himself to this process. Yet he did. And the agony of that battle in the Garden of Gethsemane is recorded for all the ages. But the fact that the God of glory robed himself in flesh and went to a cross the very thing that becomes a stumbling block to the non-believer to the atheist that says if he was the god of the universe why did he quote unquote fail on this earth the very thing that becomes a stumbling block to the non-believer becomes the point of revelation for you and i that no matter what i go through my god He's going to go through it with me. He's not sitting somewhere on a throne at a palace that's unmoved, but he is touched by the feelings of my infirmities. This is what Paul meant when he said, I am crucified with Christ. That I might know him in the fellowship of his suffering. Second Timothy chapter 1 and verse 12, he says this, For the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded everybody say persuaded put that up there second timothy 1 12 persuaded that he is able to keep that which i have committed unto him against that day he's saying that my faith is not based on a life that didn't have a lot of trials and troubles not a lot of suffering. It was filled with suffering. 
But it was in the midst of the suffering that I believed and I'm not ashamed. I know in whom I believe and I am persuaded that he is able to Once again, I tell you tonight that I'm convinced, and this I know aggravates those that are non-believers, but it just simply is what it is, that when a Christian goes through a time of suffering, God does not remove himself from them. He draws near unto them. He comes closer. He reveals himself. And gives us the gift of certainty. The certainty in Christ that comes even in the throes of human suffering. There is a strength of faith that comes in the midst of the greatest challenge to our faith. But that begs the question, where does it come from? Where did Job turn the corner and the suffering become an incubator for greater faith? Paul tells us in his writings that us being crucified with Christ is only half of the equation. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20 says this, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He now begins to reveal the second half of the equation of understanding the fellowship of his suffering. Because ladies and gentlemen, the story of Christ did not end on the cross. And the story of our Christian faith does not end with the season of suffering. Paul goes on to explain this in Romans chapter 8 and verse 18. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. He goes on to say, for as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounded by Christ. And whether we be afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effectual in the enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. Or whether we be comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. Now watch this. Verse 7. And our hope of you is steadfast, knowing. Everybody say knowing. That as ye are partakers of the sufferings, so shall ye be also of the consolation. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 10. You'll see this whole concept throughout all of his writings. Philippians 3.10. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. He says he reveals himself to us in the suffering, in the death, so that we'll also be in fellowship with him 
through the resurrection. And if we can go through the sufferings, we become convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that this pain that I'm enduring is not the final chapter. There is coming a day. There is coming a day when the grave is going to give up the dead and every body and every soul that has endured the pain of this life is going to get that fellowship of his resurrection. When we look at people like Joan, who we just buried this past week, who only wanted to be healed from her wheelchair so that she could raise her hands and worship God. But the horrible crippling disease of muscular dystrophy would not allow that. So instead, she would just bring her wheelchair down here and she would just roll it with her little joystick around and around as the choir would sing. Why was Joan not healed? I know we don't testify of this at church, but inside of every one of our hearts, we were to be perfectly honest tonight. We have asked these questions. Why did God not heal my friend? Why did God take my child unexpectedly? Why did I lose my spouse at a young age to cancer? All of these questions. We look at people who suffered at a young age with terminal diseases. Children who were taken from this earth much too quickly. Good people. Good people. Even people that have been a part of our church. Friends and family members that to this very day the sting of their death has not totally dissipated from our human experience. But I rise tonight to tell you this. If we could see what God has done with them ultimately, our faith would soar. Not because of the suffering, but because of the resurrection. Oh, if we could see every single loved one. And if we could see them dancing around the throne. If we could understand that this life is only a part of the picture. There's a resurrection. There's a new creation. There is a new earth. There is a God. That makes every wrong right. And all of that certainty is based on the knowledge that someone in time, space, and history named Jesus died and resurrected. It's why Paul said, if we don't believe in the resurrection, we are of all men most miserable. He was saying that you've got to have an understanding of this part of the equation or the first part of it will not make any sense. If you do not know Christ, or you do not believe in God, then everything in this life is finalized at the grave. What do you have when you reach that point? Nothing. You have no hope. 
And the only certainty that you have is that of death. Don't expect Richard Dawkins to be at your funeral giving words of comfort to your family because he believes in blind physical forces that really has no mercy and no care. It is what it is. It's the DNA of humanity and we dance to its music. I say to Richard Dawkins and to every atheist, and I do not say this in a way to be critical because I know many people have camped down at that campground of being an atheist simply because they are searching. But I say it tonight to say this, that there is nothing in a world of non-belief that can ever give you comfort, strength, and hope. There's nothing in that world that will ever satisfy the longing of your soul. It doesn't matter how much education you get, how many books you write. It doesn't matter the strength of your arguments. It all comes down to this. When a man or a woman gets to the end of their life and they're getting ready to lay their head down, what is it that causes a person to believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that there is hope? And ladies and gentlemen, there is no law, there is no philosophy, there is no teaching that can steal the desire and the hope out of a human soul to say, I know my Redeemer liveth. I've got a certainty. Jesus Christ is coming back one day. I don't know when, I don't know how, but I know one thing. He said in his word, let not your heart be troubled. If you believe in God, believe in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. We don't dance to the music of our DNA. We dance to a heavenly music that's calling our name. That's telling us one day it's going to be worth it all. I've sat with many people in the waning moments of their life. And at the very end, their faith increases. Not because of an illusion or because of a fanciful belief system that has failed them. But because of a certainty of where they are going. It gets stronger as you get closer. Good God Almighty. I said, it gets stronger as you get closer. It's almost like a magnet. The closer it gets, the speed increases. The closer you get to that time that you're going to go to be with the Lord, the more your soul with a spirit of anticipation and expectation stands up on its tippy toes. First John chapter 5 and verse 13 says this. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God. So he's writing this to Jesus' name, folks. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. At the very darkest moment, In the life of Job, 
when he had lost his family, his possessions, his friends, and was suffering every day with his deteriorating health. You can hear it in the cry of his despair as you read Job chapter 19. I'll start in verse 17. He says, my breath is strange to my wife. Though I entreated for the children's sake of mine own body, yea, young children despised me. I arose and they spake against me. All my inward friends abhorred me, and they whom I love have turned against me. My bone cleaveth to my skin and to my flesh, and I am escaped with the skin of my teeth. That's where that saying comes from, ladies and gentlemen. The skin of my teeth comes from the book of Job. Verse 21, have pity upon me. Have pity upon me, O ye, my friends, for the hand of God hath touched me. Why do ye persecute me as God and are not satisfied with my flesh? Ladies and gentlemen, he's going through the throes of suffering. Everything in his faith, he was a godly man to the point that the Lord had so much confidence in him that he knew that he could even get through the most difficult of circumstances. But in the midst of that suffering, you hear his flesh crying out. He has reached the bottom. But somewhere between verses 22 and 23, he finds something in his faith that starts to rise up. And when you read verse 23, there's been a change that's hard to explain. And as he goes through all of that, in Job 17, he comes to verse 23, and then he says, Oh, that my words were now written. Something is rising up now. Oh, that they were printed in a book. That they were graven with an iron pen. You feel that certainty of his soul. His condition has not changed. But something within him has found a new level. Oh, that they were graven with an iron pen and led in the rock forever. I want it to be written down. His wish was granted because Job is one of the oldest books of the Bible that we have in the history of humanity. He said, I want everybody to know. I want it to be like lead. I want it to be in a rock forever. Verse 25, for I know, everybody say no, that my Redeemer liveth. And that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God whom I shall see for myself and mine eye shall behold and not another though my reins be consumed within me. Ladies and gentlemen, Job found the certainty 
of eternal life. Thousands of years before the resurrection of Jesus. Job goes through the valley of the shadow of death and while in the valley finds a certainty. I heard one person say this, when you've gone to the bottom, you'll find that the bottom is solid and you can stand back up again. What was it that changed in Job's life? I think I know the answer. If you go just a few chapters earlier to Job 14 and verse 7, he finds the answer. He doesn't have the resurrection of Jesus to look to. But remember I told you that God reveals himself in the book of his word and the book of creation that's all around us. Job chapter 14 and verse 7, he says this, For there is hope of a tree, if it be cut down, that it will sprout again, and that the tender branch thereof will not cease. Though the root thereof wax old in the earth, and the stock thereof die in the ground, yet through the scent of water, it will bud and bring forth flowers. Or the King James Version says, bows like a plant. In the midst of his suffering, Job saw an old dead tree and saw flowers kind of growing out of it. Midst of old, dead, dry roots. And he said, though there had been no rain, there was the scent of water that was in the air. That something within that old dead tree caught just something in the atmosphere that was enough for it to live again. No, science will never answer every question in this life. But for those of us that knows what it is to experience the rapture of the presence of God and the anointing of the Spirit of God, there is an atmosphere. There is a scent of water. There is a scent of expectation that this is not where I'm going to die, devil. I'm going to get up again. I'm going to worship again. This is not the last chapter. There is coming a better day. There's coming a greater hour. I'm going to rise again. Because I know that my Redeemer liveth. Would you stand to your feet all across this building? about you but I feel that scent of water that's in the atmosphere 
There's a moisture that's in the air. said there's a moisture that's in the air you don't have evidence yet of a downpour you don't have evidence yet of a breakthrough but in your soul you can feel you can sense God is going to reveal himself God is going to show himself Because in the midst of the suffering that is part of our human race, there is a resurrection spirit. Though you and I may face countless problems when we go out those doors in just a few minutes. For just a moment in this house, There is that atmosphere of certainty. I know that I know that I know it's going to be all right. It's going to be all right. I'm going to make it. Not because of who I am, but because of who he is. Not because of my intelligence. But because he is willing to reveal himself. I wonder right now all over this building, would you lift your hands and your voice? Oh. This is your altar. It is open to you. Jesus will see you through in time here. 